Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. No matter where you're listening to us from or how, sit down, get comfortable, ease the seat back, and enjoy today's episode. All right. So we'd like to welcome Dr. Mark Cook to the show. He's a wildlife ecologist out of Jupiter, Florida. Dr. Cook, welcome. Thank you very much. It's glad to be here. So, as we identified before the show, you can you can hear that uh, Dr. Cook doesn't sound like anyone that you've talked to from Florida. Um, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about who you are, where you came from, how you ended up in Florida? Sure. Uh, I'll try to do that in a nutshell. It's quite a long story, but... Um... So basically, I I grew up in the UK, in the south of England. I grew up in a um, small village surrounded by woodlands and countryside. So that really sort of triggered my interest in wildlife. And and eventually, that led to a a bachelor degree in marine zoology, uh, which ultimately led to uh, a master's degree in ecology, uh, where I actually studied uh, puffins. Uh, in a, on a small island off Scotland. Um, and then that finally led to a PhD on seabirds uh, based at the University of Glasgow. But my fieldwork was all based uh, in these small little islands off the north coast of Scotland called the Orkney Islands. So very wild, amazing seabird colonies. Um, so yeah, so my, my initial career really was seabirds and cold water, uh, um, cold water birds, uh, but my work was not really conservation orientated at the time. It was more behavioral ecology, more academic. Um, I was trying to understand why birds interact the way they do, why they have the breeding strategies that they do in relation to environmental, ecological and um, evolutionary pressures. Um, and so with the expertise I had, um, I actually managed to get a a postdoctoral research position at the University of Berkeley. And uh, there, I, my field research was actually based in Puerto Rico, in the rainforest of Puerto Rico. And there I was doing similar stuff, looking at uh, uh, the role of uh, nesting strategies in birds. Um, but this time with, obviously, with a tropical species, a passerine species. And so I did four years at Berkeley and, um, and in Puerto Rico, and I did some work in California as well and Venezuela at that time. But, you know, uh, after spending so many years learning about these birds you, you, and, and traveling the world and seeing these, the state of how these birds are faring, how ecosystems are faring, you know, I decided I didn't really want to stay in the academic side of things, and I really wanted to go more in the applied direction. So this is how I ended up in Florida. There was a job came up to work in the Everglades for for an ecologist with my kind of skill sets, but being able to apply that, that to conservation, restoration, and management of these areas. So that's that's how I ended up eventually in Florida. Sorry, Excellent. so that was a uh, a short but fairly long story. <laughs> No, it's awesome to get that kind of background from just to figure out how you got to where you're at. And that whole background just adds all kinds of credibility just because you've been so many different places. Right, right. And I only mentioned a few of them. So, I, you know, I was fortunate enough 
when I was doing my undergraduate degree and after my undergraduate degree, I actually did an awful lot of volunteer work as well. Um, and that actually, and so I worked on seals and seabirds and that actually led, that gave me the uh, uh, experience to actually do these master's projects. I don't think I would have actually been able to do those master's projects on puffins and, and the PhD without some of the experience I gained through volunteer work. So, you know, the volunteer work is really important. So if any, you know, any young kids are listening and they want to know how to get into this field, you know, the more scientific side of things, then volunteer work and just working with animals is just critical to get connections and your foot in the door. Um, so when so you started cool. in, uh, in the UK, did you always expect to go to Africa? Just because it seems like so many there's just so much influence from up there that moves down. Like the BBC is constantly working right. in uh, Africa. You would just think that would right. be the normal thing. Or did you always have a love for North America and you just thought that's where I want to go? I had a love for all places. I just had a love for traveling to see and particularly travel to see wildlife all over the world. Um, you mentioned the BBC with, with Africa. I mean, definitely the BBC had it and you know, that and their documentaries had a major impact on me wanting to travel to Africa. In fact, I, sp I spent about four months traveling around Tanzania. And one of the places I it was really high on my bucket list to travel to was a place called Ngorongora Crater. And that's that's this huge caldera um, in the plains of Africa, an extinct volcano. But they, the animals are kind of trapped in there to some degree. They're not fully trapped in there but you know they're, they're kind of restricted in range so if you want to go and see african wildlife you know everything is in there and it's really accessible and easy to see and that's that was one of those places i just had to go and see so yeah and and all because i'd watched bbc documentaries david attenborough and other and other people since you know since i was a kid five years old so it's amazing yeah. the influence they have i mean just because there's so many people that get their start there you get your interest there and then you just right. figure out how how can i make it in this world to have something to do with wildlife right but uh, but the u.s played a big part too um my grandfather was actually american and i used to come over as a kid when i was four three or four years old and he had a farm somewhere in new jersey i couldn't tell you where and and uh my grandmother would just show me all the wonderful wildlife that there was on that farm. And, and I was just, it, it blew me away as a four-year-old. She was talking about snapping turtles. I couldn't imagine what a snapping turtle was when I was four years old, coming from England. And just the fact that they had this, you can't go too close to the pond because there's this huge snapping turtle and then bite your fingers off and, you know, all that sort of, it just, you know, just captured my imagination. Yeah, so. So at what point did you decide to pick up a camera? Because it, in all your research, I imagine you've seen every type of behavior that these birds have to offer. When did right. you pick the camera? Yeah, yeah, I've seen some some amazing scenes. I must admit, and um, unfortunately, I didn't I didn't really get serious with the photography until about five or six years ago. Um, I always, being a scientist, I always had a camera because you know we we need to give presentations and we need to document things, but um, I really didn't get into it seriously until very recently. Um, 
and the, and basically it was it was kind of by accident. I wasn't actually, um, you know, thought, oh gosh, I really like photography and I want to get into it. I'm going to buy a camera. What happened is one of my colleagues bought a camera, a, a, the older version of the uh, Canon 7D, and a f- one to four hundred millimeter zoom lens. And we needed it for some of the work that we're doing, the aerial surveys. We have we have a big experiment where we're create we're restoring these areas of, of highly nutrient enriched Everglades, and it's full of cattails. We've created these large openings in the landscape, and we're doing all sorts of studies. And one of them is uh, the bird use of them. And so um, we we were finding it difficult to, to quantify that just from aerial count. So we we're going to use a camera. My my colleague bought it was using it and she was doing all the um all the, the camera work and and i was doing other stuff because there's so many other things we're doing gps we're doing notes we're doing you know doing you were collecting all sorts of information anyway she left uh to go on and do something else um i didn't get a replacement person so i ended up using the camera and um and then <laughs> my whole world changed and um <laughs> yeah i just got you know, first of all, I was just using it for documentation. You know, we're counting all the birds and thought, oh, this is great. And um, I had basic knowledge of aperture, uh, shutter speed, and, you know, I knew how to approximately um, get the right exposure and those sorts of things. So I had that basic background. Um, but then all of a sudden I was getting some really interesting photos, quite by chance. And... And I was sort of posting them to our managers and I was, you know, so basically what my work is now, I'm going to have to um, diverge a little bit from that story, but basically what my work is now is I, you know, I have to understand how these wading birds operate in the system in relation to two main things, which is hydrology, you know, what water depths, what flow rates, how long the water stands in the in the marsh for, uh, but also water quality as well, the, the amount of nutrients and how that impacts the the ecology. And, and so a large part of my job is trying to understand these birds so we can make recommendations for managers um, to guide where to put the water, you know, when to put the water in certain areas, what areas we should be placing the water. And so, um, so that's kind of from a management and restoration perspective. And so, but what I do every week is I, you know, at this time of year when the birds are breeding, I fly out and we, and, uh, we count the number of birds. I tell where all the birds are foraging, where they're nesting. And I bring that information back to the managers and Originally, I was just doing it with graphs and numbers and, you know, quite a dry way of, of presenting that information. But as soon as I was getting these wonderful pictures of woodstalks with their chicks, it just made such a huge difference. And it really enlightened me as to how powerful photography can be to, to educate and to bring, to make the ecology of the Everglades real to these people that are stuck in the office all the time. And it just, you know, they're basically turning on the taps and putting more water here and there. But when you provide that visual um, connection to the data that you're providing, it, it just, you know, I was getting so much more feedback. 
um, and you know really making more of an impact by providing photography as well as just as as well as the data. So uh, you know so that really opened my eyes to to the power of photography. So when you say managers, are you talking about the people at the Everglades National Park, or who are well, you relaying this to? Right. So I work for a state agency in Florida called the South Florida Water Management District. And that agency is responsible for managing all of the water in South Florida. So that's from um, maybe about 100 miles north of Lake Okeechobee up near Orlando, all the way down to the Florida Keys. And so and most of that area, apart from the, the area that we've built upon and, and, and drained for farmland, is still swamp. Lakes, swamps, marshes, there's huge volumes of water that we have down here. We're basically living in a, in a huge wetland. So, you know, they're responsible for flood control, water supply, but also managing uh, the natural resources that we have. So, and I, my responsibility is directly related to the Everglades. And, and so um, my work involves guiding providing the information for managers to manage the hydrology of the Everglades and at a larger scale, how to restore the Everglades and that, but that includes not just our agency, but the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, Everglades National Park. So we work with all these different agencies to, to help guide restoration and management. So How's it going? Oh, sorry, Ron. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I was just going to, it kind of goes along with that line. Um, my question was going to be, is this a newer agency? Because the problems have been identified in the last few decades with the Everglades. And so I guess, is it a new agency? And then, yeah, we'll tack Mike's question on. How no, much no, this, have you made? this is uh, this is an old agency. Yeah, I think it's, is it? yeah, um, from the 40s, I believe. I, I okay. can't recall the exact history, but. Um, but, um, certainly in, in the last 15 years or so, ecology has begun to play much more, ecology and science has begun to play much more of a role in how we manage the system. So things have definitely improved over the last couple of de decades, just because we have one, have a much greater understanding of how the ecology of the Everglades works. And two, because we're doing a much better job of communicating, as that's our scientists and ecologists are doing a much better job of, of communicating with the managers on how to manage and restore the Everglades. So as an expert in avian ecology, I, I guess you see a lot of publicity about this issue. You know, anywhere you go, obviously, uh, species that are introduced unintentionally are causing issues and and there's been a lot of publicity about the snakes in the in the everglades currently how does that or how is that impacting i can see that would be a tough one to manage because there's just so much biodiversity so much biomass that that they would thrive in that situation yes. and unchecked yes and it's not just the snakes um uh, yeah, certainly. So the pythons have basically, uh, through people releasing them as pets, um, have 
increased dramatically. There are, I don't know the exact population estimates right now, but it's, it's literally in the hundreds of thousands. And yeah, they've caused a major impact. They have, so far, they've basically wiped out most of the small mammal population. Um, so raccoons, some of the endangered species of, of uh, rodents, um, marsh rabbits, you know, a lot of their populations are just crashing because of these, these snakes. Um, and now the mammals are running out. Our fear is that they're going to start taking out the birds. And um, we've been doing a number of studies. Uh, actually, we, we work in these really remote areas of Everglades National Park. We've been doing a study where we're trying to understand what these birds are eating. Because I'll take one very quick step backwards. The Everglades, in the Everglades, the wading birds have crashed dramatically. They, they've declined by between 50 and 90-odd and percent, depending on the species, with all the changes we've made to the hydrology over the years by draining the Everglades. So the, the wading bird populations have crashed. A lot of the research we've done has figured out why that is, and it's basically that they're food limited. The way we've changed how we operate all the water... Uh, the water depths, the how you know the um, um, various aspects of the hydrology affects the way the birds can feed, and so there just isn't enough food, and that food doesn't become available in the right way that the birds need to to support their offspring. So the major limiting factor is is the the prey, the fish, the crayfish, those kind of critters that the birds are all eating. So a lot of our research is based on those guys and not just the birds. And so we've been doing a study recently, um, and this does connect back to the snakes. We've been doing a study recently in Everglades National Park, and, and, and historically, most of the birds nested on the coastal regions right in the southern part of the Everglades. Hundreds of thousands would nest in these mangrove colonies um, right out in the, in the wilderness region of Everglades National Park. And one of the major goals of restoration is to get those birds nesting there again in those kind of numbers. But because it's so dry down there now, it's been so overdrained that, you know, typically we only get a few thousand at most in that area. So we've been doing a study over the last few years where a helicopter takes us out, drops us off in this wilderness region, and we trek into these colonies and... We scramble around in the colony trying to catch the baby birds, the, the nestlings, and we're trying to understand what they're eating. And the birds are great because they have this uh, predator defense response where they actually throw up what they've just eaten. And that really is a, pre that's a response to raccoons and other predators that when the raccoon or a possum um, approaches one of these birds, the bird throws up its food and the raccoon will eat that food while the bird can clamber up into the trees and escape. But that's great for us because it means we can collect these bowls of puke, basically, take them back to the lab, analyze them and see what these guys have been eating. And uh, so we've been doing that for a couple of years. Um, and it's just really wild out there. It's, it's, you know, this is the wild and exposed podcast, right? So this area is super wild. Just to get to some of these colonies, we have to cross these ponds. And these ponds have, um, we did a count when we were flying down, 
and it had a, over a hundred alligators in, and we had to basically cross this pond just to get to our colony, surrounded by a hundred alligators. But what we were finding in this last year we were there is that the snakes have, found, have begun to find these colonies. And um, in in 2018, we were out there, and, um, and, and I can explain why this is later, but we had the best year for over 80 years, best nesting year. We had over 122,000 nests in the Everglades, which is a huge increase, and that's comparable to what we had historically. And so we were working in the Everglades under these wonderful conditions that these these birds are nesting under and we're collecting all this wonderful data and then we're noticing that every time we go in there we see a snake and a big one too in fact so big that we don't often see one end of the snake and the other end of the snake at the same time um and so i actually <clears throat> on one occasion we tried to grab one of these snakes and um i ended up having a obviously i grabbed the the, the tail end of it and we we're going to try to bag it and see if these snakes have been eating anything um and i basically had a tug of war and i could not i could not move this snake it, once it had got entangled in amongst the mangroves it, it there was just no way and literally it got, the the viewers can't see my hands right now but I mean, it was so round here. I mean, the circumference must have been over a foot of the thickest part. Um, so, yeah. And um, eventually I just had to let it go because it was just so big and so powerful that I couldn't, I couldn't actually um, catch it. Uh, but um, what was concerning to us more than anything is that at this colony we had probably 10,000 ibis, white ibis, American white ibis, nesting on the ground. And these, this snake was just chomping down on all the young ibis. Um, and just before I caught it, we, we, actually, we actually caught it in the act of killing a fledgling uh, young ibis. Um, so, yeah, this, I think that was the first incident where we'd actually recorded one of these snakes preying on uh, on the wading birds. So yeah, they are they're likely to be having an issue uh, with these snakes. Now the question is, you know, that was one snake. How many snakes are in these colonies? We we yeah, just don't exactly. know. So so when you but, go out, do you guys take a snake person then with you? Because wasn't didn't I hear somewhere that they actually have a bounty on these snakes and you can actually. That's Some true. guys have made a business out of it. So does it make sense to, t you know, since it is so remote and I've done some filming down there where we had to fly in and it is, it's, we get way back in there that yeah. you're generally not, you know, the average person's not going to get back into some of these places unless you're right. flying out there. Right. Do you guys take anybody with you so that you can have somebody collect these snakes as you find them? No. Um, but that might be something we do in the future. That's for sure. Because, uh, you know, at that time, we were going out maybe once a week and we were finding these snakes. And then, you know, pretty much our field season only lasted a month. So by the time we got to, you know, found these snakes and would be able to organize that, the, the field season was over. But because of the data we collected on these snakes, um, and <laughs> it's funny because I actually took, I've been taking aerial photos of these colonies and all, the, all those ibis I was talking about nesting on the ground and 
my colleague who I've been working with on this project wrote to me a, a few weeks ago and said, Mark, take a look at this photo and tell me what you see in the bottom right-hand corner. And so I'd processed this photo of just the birds nesting, and he'd, and what, lo and behold, in the bottom corner was this huge python. And it's and it's it must be you can't see the the, the tail end and the heads, but it looked like it's at least ten foot long from the from the segments you can see. And the reason I didn't notice it is because the, it's going right between all these nests, and the birds aren't even moving. You've got a few birds just looking over, peering down, seeing what the commotion is, literally a foot below them, but they're not they're not moving. This snake could potentially just take any bird without spooking it. If that was a raccoon, that whole colony would be gone. Right. But, right. So they just don't have that natural fear of those snakes okay. because it's not right. it's an introduced species. Right. Wow. That well, so out of all the issues that you deal with, so you have water issues, you have people issues, overpopulation, you have so many different issues. What is that one of the top ones or what how would you what would you say is the top issue you guys are dealing with down there? Um it could be it could be one of, it is an important issue. Um and as I hinted at earlier it's not just the snakes. We have mo monitor lizards on the edge of the Everglades now. We have tegus, which is another type of monitor lizard from um, from Argentina. So, uh, these are prolific egg hunters, and not just, you know in the Nile monitor in Africa dig feeds on crocodile nests. I mean, so that's going to have a major impact on our wading bird colonies and our American endangered American crocodile and the uh, and alligators so if they encroach into the everglades and we're trying hard to to get rid of those populations but if they encroach i think they could be even worse than than the than the python uh, we also have um, I can't remember the exact number, but about 40 different species of exotic fishes, non-native fishes that live in the Everglades. You know, that's a huge input, 40 different species into, a, into a, an ecosystem. That, that, that has uh, an impact. We have exotic apple snails that are may potentially overrunning the native apple snail that the snail kite, you know, exclusively feeds upon. Uh, mm -hmm. Fortunately, the Actually, that's a case, that's a little a weird case because the snail kite 10, 15 years ago, we were seriously thinking that was heading towards extinction in Florida, extirpation in Florida, because the, the native apple snail numbers had declined so much and the population every year of the kite was getting lower and lower. And um, then the native, the sorry, the invasive uh, apple snail started to increase dramatically in numbers and following suit was the snail kite. And now the snail kite has doubled, tripled its population uh, compared to what it was uh, 10, 15 years ago. So that exotic snail has potentially saved the snail kite. So that's kind of the complexities that we're dealing with here. But then there's a trade-off potentially because the the non-native species outcompetes potentially outcompetes the native species 
And sometimes these exotic species will, their numbers will grow and you think it's going to be terrible and they're going to wipe out everything. And then all of a sudden their numbers crash and then they almost disappear. Um, that's happened to a number of different species. So if that happens to the, um, the, this invasive apple snail, then we could see, we could, that could spell trouble for the snail kite again. I didn't realize the snail kites were in decline. That's one species that I did have the opportunity to photograph in short time that I've spent in Florida. Right. And I didn't realize the opportunity was that rare. I actually got one with a, with an apple snail, but really, yeah, it's well, how, uh, it's, how long ago was that? Oh, that oh, uh, 2009, <laughs> probably. Okay, yeah, 2009 um, or 2010. Uh, they were just turning things around at, at that time, so 2006, 2007 is where really where they hit, hit rock bottom, and and then they were starting to improve, you know, increase a little bit, but. Their populations, you were lucky at that time. Their populations were, were fairly low. Um, yeah, no, that was up near Kissimmee. Kissimmee, right. That's a that's an important nesting area for them. And we just had a uh, photo shoot there last week, and we saw snow kites every day. Right. So, and that yeah. was in Kissimmee. So right. It was, I, it was pretty I, cool. Right. We, I've, right now, water levels, you know, in, in southern Florida, we have a wet and a dry season. We just entered the dry season. Water levels are coming down in all the local wetlands near my house. And over the last weekend, I've actually been um, shooting uh, snail kites uh, in just in our local wetland, which is really encouraging. Well, let's dig into your photography because I was whipping through yeah, your exactly. Instagram page and you've got some pretty amazing images. And to have really picked up a camera, you said, what, five, six years ago? Right you've come a long way pretty quick what do you think is uh well first of all what kind of gear do you use and then what was the evolution of that gear because i'm looking at some stuff here that is fairly macro and then right. you know you've got to have some big lens stuff too so just give us an idea of what you're using and then how that evolved from when you started till now right well it hasn't evolved that much actually so um so now i i I've got the the 7D Mark II, Canon 7D Mark II, with the with the newer one to 400 millimeter lens. I recently bought the 100 millimeter macro, um, basically to shoot um, at times when I can't be shooting birds and other things. And and there's just so many cool critters, smaller critters down here in in southern Florida. I really wanted to capture some of that. Um, and I actually wanted to capture some of it for work too. You know, we work, um, like I said, on the smaller critters that these birds are foraging on, the crayfish. And I really wanted to, there's very few photos of crayfish and the interactions that the birds have with the crayfish. Um, so I really wanted to get some really nice macro close-up shots of the crayfish, how they come up through their bur uh, enter through their burrows, um, and, um, you know, capture some of the interesting behaviors that some of these crayfish are doing as well. So, so that's, I only recently bought that macro, maybe a month, six weeks ago. Really? Yeah. Uh, Is that where you got some of these spider? Yeah. Spider yeah that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, you didn't waste much time getting out and putting that thing to work. That's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. So really my gear is quite limited. I, I recently just bought a flash as well. 
Um, um, you know, because, uh, well, for all sorts of reasons, just during low light conditions and working in forests and, um, and bringing out some of the, the colors of some of these birds under, under, you know, low light conditions. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I, it's the money, right? <laughs> Trying to get enough money uh, on a poor scientific salary to be able to, uh, get as many, you know, the lenses, um, and the equipment that I, that I need, but so far it's fairly basic. Um, I'd like to expand and get some, some larger lenses, but a lot of the time I just use Fieldcraft to get as close as I can to some of these animals. That's, that's the way I do it. When you're shooting out, so I'm assuming most of the aerial stuff you're talking about is all out of a helicopter just because you can't fly a drone in a national park. I guess you could get a special use permit or something, but I'm assuming most of that is done there. And then if you're trying to carry all this gear and do your research, you can't afford to carry too much. I mean, you've got to have some of your research gear too, right? So the system you have sounds like it's, I mean, you look at the images you have on Instagram and you got some stellar stuff up here. So I don't know that you need much more, but I know what you're saying. We all want that next (laughs) big, awesome lens or something. Right. Well, I, I really appreciate your comments. That's that's very kind of you. Thanks. Um, yeah, I think just, uh, you know, and it's not necessarily about getting closer. I really, I, you know, there's that 600 millimeter lens, the F4. A lot of it's actually to do with just blurring out the background better than I can do with the, the, with the current 100 to 400 um, uh, F5.6 that I have. So, um so yeah, it's mainly about that rather than getting closer, um, for the most part. Out of all the stuff that you get to shoot, what's your favorite? Do you have a, a favorite situation, or do you have a favorite species, or do you have a yeah. favorite time of year, or <clears throat> do you have favorites of all that? Yeah, well, so here's what, with my five years um, and being a scientist, so I think being a scientist gave me a little bit of an advantage on to start with and I and I think the reason why is because um, I understand the behavior of these animals and so first of all I'm starting off with the species I know the most the wading birds and, and other species of birds that I'm familiar with or some of the fish or, or whatever and um, and so you know I I really would advocate for anyone who's learning, you know, just starting out with this photography business is to, and I think you've said this on many of your uh, previous podcasts, is get to learn your species and to some extent, not fully, but to some extent to focus on something to start with. A certain species, focus on a, you know, or a group of species like wading birds or uh, warblers or like you guys do with um, with uh, cervids and um, big game so you know and and, and the reason for that is, is multiple um, one you get to know where to find these animals you've got a good sense of how to find them there for birds you know you learn their calls you know where to find them you know when they're coming you know, the, the seasonality of these different animals, um, but also behaviorally. 
getting to understand the science and and natural history of these species is critical because if you want to do either award-winning photos or get your photos in magazines or you know however you want to tell that story about these animals the best way to do that is to do is to photograph something unique something that people aren't not most people are seeing and the only way you can do that is to research these animals find out what's really cool and interesting about them so for instance on instagram the other day i posted um about limpkins and i said that one of the things that i really want to photograph in the future is this strange behavior that not only a few people seen but no one's ever photographed it before so so that's the kind of thing i do i i find out what is going to be really unique about this species, what hasn't been seen before, and then really aim to try and photograph those things. So in the Limkin case, uh, the post on Instagram, and they do this really strange thing. So they do, so during mating, they, um, they do what many other birds do, and, and terns and, and other species, is the male catches a snail, because the Limkins, like the snail kite, feed... Do you know what a limkin is, by the way? It's this big oh, rail-like just, just looking. bird. And it's, it's, a way, it's like a wading bird, but it's more related to, to rails and cranes. It's brown in color, and they feed just on apple snails. Well, they'll feed a little bit more on other mollusks like freshwater mussels. But primarily, it's apple snails. And what they do is the male during the breeding season will bring an apple snail and feed the female pretty much like the female is a chick it's like a it's an offering to, and it basically shows you know the quality of the male in terms of catching food and, and that sort of thing but what they also do and no one's photographed this before is every now and again they'll bring a piece the male will bring a piece of rotten wood to the female and feed and it not just a, a stick it's a rotten wet being underwater for for months piece of slimy rotten wood and the female will eat that and why no one knows it's possibly related to probiotics that that you know provide some sort of immunity for the for the female or it may have some sort of minerals in it that the female can't get from the snails it's not sure but but that's just an example of you know capturing something that no one else has captured before and that you know that's what really floats my boat as far as as photography goes is just capturing these unique behaviors that no one's seen before well i think that's really important too right because so many of us go out and shoot the same things right and you shoot the same antlers or you're shooting the same bears or right i think if you do focus in on what you're talking about there's so many hundreds of thousands of shots that have never been taken yet. I mean, there's so many places that you really? can probably go 10 miles from your house and experience something different every day. Have you messed around with underwater, underwater stuff at all? No, I haven't, but that I really want to. I mean, it's just the, the housings are just so expensive. And I know you guys have been talking about these silicon housings. Um, uh, so that that kind of intrigued me because I'm not – I probably don't want to be, I'm not really going to be scuba diving, but, you know, in the wetlands, you know, just going underwater a couple of feet, um, I could capture some really 
interesting behaviors and interactions between um, one one thing I really want to do is that we're, we're you know we've been working on how wading birds are capturing these prey and when they're capturing them and actually we've recently published a scientific paper showing this unique behavior in wide ibis whereby basically the the everglades is ridges and sloughs it's high elevation ridges and deeper water sloughs and you know the 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 basic understanding of these wading birds is they wait to the water levels decline, the prey will become really concentrated in these shallow pools, and that's when the wading birds feed on them. But we've found out that they are actually they can actually feed at really deep water as well. And what happens is water levels decline and come off the ridges, so the ridges dry, the sloughs are still very deep. All the ibis will feed along the edges as literally thousands of crayfish are migrating into the into the sloughs and one of the things i really want to capture both on film you know video and um with photography is is that movement of crayfish off the ridges and and the ibis actually taking advantage of that and 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 you know feeding on these uh, high densities of crayfish just on the edges of you know the interface of these two different habitats and again that's totally new it hasn't even it hadn't even been observed until this year the paper we wrote about it it sounds so, you know, like you need to write a grant for about 18 action cameras right <laughs> right i know and just stagger yeah. them around at different water levels i think you'd probably catch some of that in right yeah, so I have I do have a number of GoPros that I'm I'm going to try to try to capture that with. So. And I think that's probably the best way to get started with the underwater work as well. I mean, the, yeah. if you look at the stuff that uh, you know, these guys found the the good water after I left Alaska last summer, but the footage that they were able to get of the salmon run, you know, and that's to be right. able to capture some of that in the uh, capture some of that in the Everglades as well, you'd be def- dealing with definitely different water clarity or water quality but i think the behaviors that you could capture would tell a lot more of the story than what you can get with a still image as that's, well that's true that's true actually the, the clarity of the water in the everglades is, is crystal clear it's beautiful it's, it's just you just have to be very careful there's so much muck on the bottom that you know just any disturbance just sends all that muck up into the water column and you then you have to wait for 30 minutes or so for it all to settle back down again but yeah that, that you can get some beautiful underwater shots in the everglades so so if yeah, you're shooting video then you would be able to so like you said earlier when you're doing your reports and if they're all text driven they're awful dry it's just a lot of information right. spreadsheets right. and this sort of thing you've incorporated still images but if you take it that next step and start incorporating the video, there's got to be even more buy-in too, right? Especially if you show them behavior like that, that nobody's really witnessed or, right. you know, people probably have, but nobody's done it to the level that you've probably been able right. to watch it. Right. That's got to be the perfect way to use that technology and use that, that stuff, that footage. Absolutely. And actually we, we have dabbled a little bit in that already. Um, and I can give a great example of, so we were, um, uh, so we have these areas north of the Everglades, so these constructed man-made wetlands. We have, 
they're huge. We have 57,000 acres of man-made wetlands, okay? Are that, these made to uh, replace uh, wetlands that were destroyed, or what is the reason for well, that? Well, okay, so basically they were, they were built on farmland that historically was the Everglades. But, we, you know, they were built on farmland. The, the idea behind these, these stormwater treatment areas is the nutrient issue that we have in the Everglades. The Everglades is, has very few nutrients. The only phosphorus we get into the Everglades naturally is from the rain, okay, from rainfall. The Everglades now is surrounded by farmland and decades and decades of fertilizer use on these farmlands canals going into the Everglades, the water goes, rushes off these farmlands into, you know, from the fields into the canals and then into the Everglades. And that's basically turned that Everglades that was historically very low nutrient to very high nutrients. And when you do that, you change your, you know, that the river of grass, sawgrass and open, a lot of open water habitat into a dense sea of monotypic cattail, just thick, thick cattail, completely um, um, uh, covers the water column, so it's dark, nothing grows in the water. Um, so basically, it's just ecologically almost dead. Um, so that's been a major issue. So these STAs, the design of these STAs is to, as that water comes into the Everglades, before it gets into the Everglades, it goes through these huge uh, man-made marshes and those marshes have cattails, and that sucks up a lot of the, the nutrients from the fertilizer. And then it goes into another type of wetland, more a more open water wetland, and that kind of polishes off until we remove most of, of the phosphorus. Now, unfortunately, we're not removing as much phosphorus as we want to. We still want to remove more. And so there's this big scientific, a lot of money, a lot of... Um, interest in the science of how do we improve the function of these these man-made wetlands and um, my idea is that the wildlife in the ever in these man-made wetlands is both is impacting our ability to remove nutrients and the wildlife can actually help remove it and it can actually hinder us as well and um, because these, these wetlands are so nutrient-rich, the wildlife in them is unbelievable. The waterfowl numbers, literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of coots and ducks during the winter will, will um, feed and, and, you know, just basically overwinter. The fish populations are just, you know, just the waters bubble with fish. There are so many fish in these SDAs, and it's all because they're high in nutrients relative to the Everglades. So, so I had to, you know, persuade um, the powers to be that we really needed to understand how wildlife are affecting nutrient dynamics. And they can do that, obviously, hundreds of thousands of coots and ducks, they're eating all the plants that we need to remove the phosphorus because that's how you you know remove the phosphorus these plants basically absorb all the nutrients that's how they grow and they poop so they're putting all that phosphorus that was once stored in these plants 
back into the water column that then flows back out into the into the to the Everglades. So, um, in addition to all the dry science I provided to show that this would be a good, good idea, I had a video of of the ducks, the hundreds of thousands. And what I did is I put a GoPro right on the front of the helicopter and we just flew across these wetlands. And literally, you, I've got this video where they're all, all hun, literally hundreds of thousands of ducks are taking off in front of us. And it's just, you know, it's just mind blowing. And, you know, I can provide the science and I can provide the data, but, you know, you see, you see the other scientists and uh, the decision makers, their jaws just drop when you, you provide that video evidence. It's, you know, it's right there. You don't need the data. So, yeah, absolutely. Videos, videos are very, very useful as well. Anybody that wants to make a living in photography should go get a PhD in avian <laughs> ecology well, to start and then yeah. go pursue your photography career because it sounds like there's limitless opportunities. And the Everglades is, I mean, it's just, it's in a constant state of evolution. I mean, I don't know that we're ever going to bring it back to its original state status but no, we may never. get something close and we and it's going to evolve i mean there's no way you're going to get rid of hundreds of thousands of snakes or right but you can manage it and hopefully we can manage it to the point where it is close to normal or that's the aim we yes so we can never recover it fully i mean we've lost half of the the area of the everglades 50% of its area to, you know, it's under farmland or, you know, Miami and Fort Lauderdale and everything else. So, but um, the, the idea is to recover a lot of the historical ecological functions. And the great thing about the Everglades is, I mean, we've been monitoring wading birds down there since the 1800s. So the late 1800s. So we've got a really good understanding, at least from, from a bird perspective, of what we're aiming to recover um so yeah so but so getting back to what you were saying about getting a phd and you know then then to become a, a photographer so the major constraint there is you know that there's a lot of science i need to do and and other things so i don't quite get the uh, time to do as much photography as i'd like but i you know i still get to do do plenty if you ever um, need to hire a photography assistant, I'll come help. Sure, sure, yeah. He's he's um, got plenty of work, but I, oh, I would be I happy know. to help. I mean, yeah. his stuff is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, if, but oh, go I, ahead. I would, I would, um, I would, you know, one of the things I wanted to say is, you know, the the reason I I do this the the photography more than anything is well, one I really enjoy the artistic side of it now, but. You know, I really got into this because I wanted to be able to communicate what's really passionate to my heart, which is the, you know, the environment and, you know, protecting what we have left and restoring and, and, and showing the public and people what we're missing if we don't do that. Um, and, you know, the issue we face is, um, unfortunately, it's, you know, we have issues um, you know, political issues that are a problem. But I feel one of the biggest problems with wildlife conservation is people just don't understand it enough. And they, they just do not realize the situation that we're in. 
Um, and, you know, the, the state of the ecology of the world is pretty dire. And, you know, there's this thing called, oh, what is it? Um, um, shifting baseline syndrome, syndrome. Have you heard of that before? So the basic idea here is that, you know, people think nature is what they see as a child and how they grow up, okay? And because, um, because we have fairly short lives and fairly short memories, um, what people don't realize is that ecosystem has tr changed dramatically from what it was historically. And, you know, some of the, I, I had to give a, a presentation at a, a scientific conference in the Everglades um, earlier in the year. And I had to do a little bit of research on what the wildlife was like in Florida, you know, through the ages. And, and it has changed so dramatically. It, it's, it's almost hard to believe. Even in the last, you know, so you probably heard the reports um, about the birds, uh, the dramatic decline in the birds in, in basically in our lifetime over the last 50 years or so, right? So, so we've lost 3 billion birds from the, the overall population over the last 50 years. That's 30% of, of um, you know, the overall population. You know, if, if, if we'd lost that equivalent in human beings in the U.S., that would be a about 100 million people. I mean, but when it's birds, people, you know, they just don't connect. So a lot of where I want to go, go to is to try to educate as much as I can but by staying optimistic, as optimistic as I possibly can be, to educate people about what we have, how beautiful it all is, but also every now and again, you know, every 10 posts or whatever, I'll just drop in there what we're losing as well and try and get more and more people engaged. And, you know, and, and even if it's just through awe and the beauty of these photos and videos that people just get more connected um to you know to, to nature and you know what it has to offer um and also to try to show the value of it um you know nature people think that we're you know people who live in cities particularly are somewhat disconnected to nature and don't really realize that we are absolutely reliant on on the natural world, um, not just for our economies, but for for our very existence. You know, nature provides all the protections. You know, a functioning, functioning, healthy Everglades, for instance, protects against storms. Um, it provides, you know, it stops flooding because it soaks up a lot of the water. It protects against hurricanes with all the mangrove fringes. It actually the, the amount of water that we have in the Everglades pushes down the salt water that's coming up from, a, from below. So it, it enables us to have fresh drinking water. And, you know, it's just so, so many aspects of nature that we don't, that most people don't realize that are so important to our well-being. What's the best way so, to get that know, message out? What is the, like in the local Florida area, do people understand that? Or is that still something that, Somebody well, in Miami just has no clue. A lot of people in Miami 
don't have a clue or West Palm Beach or Jupiter or yeah. Um, and so, so that's kind of, I feel I have a, a moral ethical obligation to not just work, you know, do my job, but to provide a lot of that information to the public. So I do that to some extent through Instagram, but I do, I do tours, birding tours that are very, not just birding for people to list, but are very ecological in nature and educational. Um, and, you know, I do that all for, you know, for, for free. I do that through Audubon and, and other, other groups where I take people out. We do, I do educational classes for people that want to learn about the environment and, and to learn about the ecology of wetlands so they can advocate um, for the protection of these areas. Um, I'm quite often doing things like this podcast. This is my first podcast, but, um, quite often I'm on film. For instance, I was out photo. I had the day off yesterday and I went out to photograph the snail kites that I was talking about. And I bumped into some guys that I know that, uh, that work for a film crew and they were doing a show on the natural areas of Palm Beach County. So they grabbed me for two hours on my day off to, to, fit, to film me and talk about snail kites and some of the issues we talked about with snails and apple snails and snail kites. And, and so we did, a, you know, we do, I do a lot of videos and, um, for, for TV and the news. Um, we have a, a report. This is through work. But so I, every year I write a wading bird report. I write it and edit it and compile all the data from, from people from all over South Florida. And um, it's kind of it's a really good report because people care about the wading birds and and it's a really good way of showing how what's happening with Everglades restoration and the press just love it. They pick up on it all, the you know, and so we get three or four different local newspapers that will um, write about the wading birds and, and explain it. And I've got a really good rapport now with some of these reporters. So they do a, a great job of explaining what the issues are. So, yeah, so I'm really interested in this whole communication of science and ecology and, and natural history, just general natural history as well, to just try and educate as much as possible. And I, I guess in terms of how do you do that? I mean, I don't know the best answer. Um, I, I, I'm just trying and seeing what works and what doesn't. I would say one approach that I have used, as I mentioned, is to try to be optimistic. You don't want to, you don't want to, you know, bore people with doom and gloom all the time. But every now and again, I think you need to sneak it in there and just provide a little information. But, um, well, you got to put it into context, right? So you've got, I think people relate to that. But I'm with you 100%. It's all got to be optimistic and the future's bright and this is how yeah. we can do it. And it, it is, it, people accept that answer way more than right. uh, doom and gloom. Right. And I so, just think, oh, go ahead, Ron. Well, it's no different than, you know, here in the West, you look at, you know, we measure the health of the overall ecosystem with, certain species one species that has been kind of at the forefront lately has been the the greater sage grouse right and the decline in that population even just in my lifetime i mean when i was a kid you could you could go out and watch lex with 100 birds on them now you go out i took mike and mark out here what two springs ago i guess it is now and uh 
you know, there's lecks with six and ten birds instead of a hundred. So you you can look at different different um, I guess uh, species that give us a, a thermostat, a thermometers basically for what's going on with the over overall health of the ecosystem. How do you go about then educating the public as far as what to watch for? What is helpful information for you to establish kind of a, a citizen science, I think is what we've had some people call it, um, in the different ecosystems? Well, the, when I'm giving presentations or a talk to Audubon or a, a guided tour, a lot of it is simply explaining the ecology. I mean, how the system works. You know, what, for instance, the, the simple relationship between wading birds and water levels, for instance. What do they need? So, you know, they can advocate um, for their local wetland to have those kind of water levels in their wetland. Um, often it's as simple as that. Um, or, you know, I'll take them on a tour of these SDAs, the, these as I mentioned, these STAs are so full of wildlife, so full of birds that um, Audubon groups go out and they do guided tours. And I lead some of those tours. And so when I'm out there, I'll explain, like I have on this podcast, kind of how the the STAs function, um, what they're used for, why they're so important, the issues with nitrogen uh, and phosphorus getting into the system. So, you know, I think information and knowledge is is key to being able to to um deal with some of these problems and you know when you've got a a group of citizen scientists that are educated in all the issues that's when they, they that's when they become very powerful and can affect change um so you know that's how i go about it if you if you look at some of my instagram posts i don't always have time every day to write an ecological article but you know once or twice a week certainly i'll be posting some information about the the critters or uh about you know conservation or some interesting scientific fact about them so just to and and there are certain people certain people just you know like or don't like and just scroll through but you know you there's definitely quality you know there's a quality following that are definitely reading what i write and commenting on what i write and so it's getting through to people. So well, anytime yeah. you'd like us to share any of that information as well, we'd be happy to do that. Oh, great, great. But um, if, if you don't mind me just expanding on that, and you know, more Michael was saying about getting a PhD. I I personally don't think you need to get a PhD. <laughs> I, I know so many, or you know, even have a um, a bachelor's degree in in wildlife ecology. I you know, I've got. A number of good friends that are doing such amazing work with their photography and learning about the critters. You know, they don't have all the science background, but that's not always necessary. There is so much information out there now, so much good information that, you know, anybody, you know, if, if somebody wants to learn about warblers and focus on warblers or, or uh, you know, wolverines or whatever, um, you know, the information is out there. And uh, particularly with birds, it, you know, there's so much information on birds that you can become a citizen scientist to advocate through your photography uh, very easily. And I, you know, I'd very much, I don't see enough of that. 
on Instagram or Facebook. You know, people post their really great photos, but I would like to see and encourage more people to, you know, learn a bit about what they're doing. You know, try to find something, even if it's not about the actual animal, about maybe their experience with the animal, how, you know, what it is that makes them go out and take those photos and, you know, their love of nature and, and what drives them to go out and take these photos. But I think, you know, most people can do what I do. That information is out there. Um, a lot of it has been distilled in a, you know, a non-scientific way that's easy to read. Um, so, so yeah. Excellent. So if somebody wants to come to Florida and cause I've done it, I wouldn't say a ton of times, but three or four or five different times. And every time I go there, I'm just, there's so much to shoot and it's so <laughs> fun. I mean, you can go down, yeah. uh, I don't I, we were at the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge. We're right. doing a project with the Panthers and we needed a lot of B-roll of a lot of the different things just to put into the show. And I me, mean, you just drive down a road down there and man, there's everything that you could want. It's just so amazing. If you could, if you had to just give somebody a, a good idea of where to go and what to do. I mean, now we don't want to have a place be overwhelmed with people, of course, but there's so many different places, right? Where you can go get really yeah. awesome stuff and it doesn't have to cost a bajillion dollars because you can do a lot of it from a car and drive to a spot and walk some nature trails or, um, are, can you just throw out a couple ideas like that for people that, that would well, get out there, see some stuff and, you know, start to develop that appreciation? Right. Um, yeah. Um, well, what I would do first of all is research, you know, if you're coming to Florida, what is it you want to shoot? What time of year you're going there and sort of research, like if, for instance, if you wanted to photograph spoonbills and you're coming during the winter, you know, look on eBird, see where all the spoonbills have been seen recently in, in eBird. So, you know, with birds, things can change. Um, and so, you know, do your due diligence, research what you want to look for um, and research those areas that might have, you know, good populations that you can that are approachable and you can have access to. In terms of actual places, gosh, there's so many. Right, <laughs> there are. Um, uh, on my coast, on the East Coast, um, I mean, a lot of the w work I do uh, are small local wetlands that are literally um, within walking distance of my house. That's where, prob you know, the, the non-helicopter shots, 90% of the shots I take are in my local wetlands that I just wander around. And so that's another thing I would advocate just very quickly is, you know, get a local patch and really get to understand it. I know where, I know where individual birds are going to be pretty much in that, in that wetland. Um, I know where the owls are nesting. I know where the birds are going to be. The wading birds are going to congregate. I know where the bobcats are going to be traveling. Uh, you know, so understanding a place like that is, is really useful as well. But getting back to actual places, um, okay, let's start at the southern end. So Everglades National Park, uh, you know, the main road through Everglades National Park at Homestead. Uh, have you been there? That's just absolutely incredible. I've There's not so been many. To that road. Yeah, so you you know you go to the headquarters in Everglades National Park and you just drive all the way down to an old village at the end on Florida Bay called Flamingo, 
and you'll go through multiple different habitats, seeing lots of different things, um, you know, depending on the time of year. There's a place called the Amhinga Trail that you can get really close to different wading birds that are nesting and, um, and obviously Anhingas. There's loads of alligators there, you know, just lots of different critters, just very accessible along the boardwalk. And then you can drive down. There's other wading bird colonies nearby. There's a spoonbill colony at a place called Perotus Pond. Um, there's various other ponds and areas where there's crocodiles and and you know just all sorts of different things. So and on the way down there'll be various different rare birds depending on the time of year: swallowtail kites, short-tailed hawks. Um, bald eagles, you know, all ospreys by the dozen. You know, there's there's osprey nests there that are in snags that are maybe 10 foot, 15 foot tall, and you can literally look right into the nest. So Everglades National Park, you know, get an understanding of the Everglades. That's the best place to see the Everglades. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, coming north, there's another, the northern part of the Everglades is the Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. That's another wonderful area. Again, that's got, it's the, there's the actual Everglades itself, but um, there's near the visitor centers, there's all these impoundments and, and um, cypress forests that are really great. Um, probably one of the most famous that you may have heard about is, is actually not really a natural area. It's, it's a ma another man-made wetland, but much smaller than our stormwater treatment areas. And it's designed basically to, to filter off the gray water that comes from, from the city of, um, of, uh, of Delray Beach. And it's called Wakodahatchee Wetlands. And that place can be absolutely <laughs> mind-blowing. It, it can have hundreds and hundreds of storks nesting literally within touching distance of the boardwalk great blue herons doing all their displays right next to the boardwalk uh purple gallinules you know within a couple of feet of you so everything is really tame it's got 12 foot alligators swimming around in there you know there's but it's all along the boardwalk it's it's not my favorite place in the world because it's it's you know it's a man-made wetland. It's a boardwalk. There's lots always lots of people, hundreds of photographers there. Um, it's not that you know it's not very it's not wild and scenic. But uh, to get close-up pictures of wading birds, it is is just phenomenal. What's um, the best time of year? What would you if if someone only had one trip to go to Florida? What would you say is the best time to be there? Uh, it depends on water level and depend, obviously it depends what you want to shoot. If you want to come and shoot wading birds, uh, or most birds, in fact, um, any time between now and May, you know, this dry season, water levels are coming down. That's when all the birds congregate, the, the Everglades and the wetlands are all getting very shallow. That concentrates all their fish and crayfish into these small pockets and, you know, you just get these huge congregations of these birds. That's the time that they're nesting here in Florida. Um, the storks and spoonbills start nesting right now. The eagles here are starting to nest now. Um, so, you know, nesting is very different from, from up north and out west, uh, where it start, typically starts in the spring. A lot of the 
the nesting actually starts in the in the early winter here. And of course, now I mean it's it's still eighty degrees right now. So yeah, I was so down there last so week and it was in the forties, and everybody on the yeah. TV news they were saying. Okay, now that we've had winter, summer's you know starting back up, so everybody needs to come right. down because we, yeah. we just went through winter, and now we're back into summer, and right. and yeah, it was getting really. I mean, we in the morning it was still a little chilly, right? But by afternoon we were in the seventies and eighties, and you were sweating, right. and it's beautiful. It's amazing. Right. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. I've learned a ton more than than what I knew, and I know it's such a cool spot, and I love your work. Your work is amazing. And having only done it for four or five years or five or six years, I'm just blown away by what you're able to get out there. And I think, like you said early on, so much of it is just you know these animals, right? You just know their behaviors, you know the places, you, you and then that just allows you to capture those images that really set yourself apart. Right. Well, you know, obviously you have to learn the technical side of things with the cameras and, you know, understanding composition and the artistic side of things and and that's a that's a slow learning process but there's you know so much information to learn that quickly now with youtube looking at you know a lot it's great you know what you guys are doing i've learned so much and are using that information you know i just suck it up like a sponge and and use it really quickly to try to improve my photography and you know every little thing i learn from you guys and youtube and it it's it's all coming together but yes i would say uh, once you have those technical skills then the next most important thing is to to really get to know your animals if you want to get really interesting novel shots then get to know your subject i have one other question for you where did your instagram name come from oh <laughs> good question yeah so so, yeah, so I, I set up my Instagram. I thought, gosh, what name can I use? And so I've got, I've got two little girls, and my youngest girl at the time, um, I think she was probably about two years old, and, and she, wants to, she wanted to tell the, hit the light switch on and off all the time. Daddy, let me have to go to the light switch. Turn it on and off. And, and so, yeah, she's my little light switch addict. So, so basically, that's where it came from. And it and it kind of had a sort of photography ring to it as well. So, I love uh, it. I love it. Yeah. It was, uh, I, when I was typing it in today just to put it on the podcast stuff, I'm like, where? I don't know. I want to ask this question. Where did this thing come from? Because it's just like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's yeah. out there. That's my little daughter, Ameline. So, <laughs> so if you want to check out Mark's stuff, go to at Light Switch Addict on Instagram. And then, do you do Facebook too, or do you just stick to Instagram? Yes. So, uh, Mark Ian Cook Photography is on Facebook. Yeah, I've just started that up. So, okay. And what about any of the biology type stuff? Most of that would be in the captions on Instagram, and probably some on Facebook, and. Is there anywhere yeah, somebody the, can go to find some of that stuff? Uh, the Wading Bird reports you can easily access through the uh, website of the South Florida Water Management District. Um, and basically, you just search for Wading Bird Report, and that will take you to the page. Um, we'll have to link to that just because there's got to be really interesting information in that. Oh, yeah. No, that's uh, uh, so, you know. I'm I'm one of the editors 
so yeah, I would say it's interesting, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's full of great information. Um, but if anybody wants information or papers that we've written, um, just you know, direct message me on Instagram or Facebook and um, and just ask. That's awesome. I look yeah. on your I look on your feed, and you do spend a little bit of time in the West, also. So you'll have to you'll have to That's stay in touch right. when you get out so, this way. Yeah. That's right. So every yeah, so we have we have family out in in Denver. So uh, yeah, I get excited about coming over for a for a week or two, and um, occasionally we get to get to go up to Yellowstone and you know other places. But excellent. Yeah. If you make it out in the if you make it out in the spring, you'll have to. We'll take you on a little grouse tour. That would be, yeah, that would be great. I, I would definitely take you up on that. Well, and I'm going to head out to Florida too. I just, uh, you know, you just don't, I don't know, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. You just don't think about it. But just being there last week and seeing, you know, I wasn't shooting wildlife. I was shooting a, a project, a commercial project. But we were on boats and we were out in the lake and it was all about fishing, what we were doing. And you just, I'm just seeing all this wildlife go by, and I'm, yeah. I can't take time to go shoot it. And we're starting at sunrise and finishing at sunset, so there was no time in between. But having being that close to it and not being able to go shoot it, I'm thinking to myself, man, I just really want to get back out here. Yeah, it's a it's an awesome place, you know, especially in the winter. I would say the winter and the spring is the best. Summer is hot, humid, and I mosquitoes. mean, there's still things to shoot. Mosquitoes like crazy. Uh, in certain places, um, you know, and there's not as much wildlife. It's it's harder to, but it's it's. Then you tend to, I tend to gravitate more to the coastal. Um, I try to, I, I'm actually I actually supervise eight other scientists, and part a lot of that group work in Florida Bay. So we tend to, um, you know, which is the area south of Everglades National Park and north of the Keys, Florida mm-hmm. Keys. So that whole sort of big bay estuarine area, which is beautiful, full of dolphins and, you know, manatees, sea turtles. And so, yeah, yeah. try to spend more time in the water. And um, I want to get back into diving and, um, and, you know, rather than the swamp at that time of year. For but, sure. But yeah, but it, for, for the lakes and the wetlands, the winter. winter yeah, I think is- anybody that wants to get out of winter and just leave, Colorado and leave the snow or leave Minnesota and leave the snow or leave wherever you're at and there's snow. Right. Just go to Florida and you're back in summer and it's it's awesome. Right. Yeah. It's the best place to be. I really appreciate your time. I've learned so much. Well, thanks for your time. Well, we greatly appreciate it. Well, I I really appreciate it. Uh thank you very much. Um you know, this this is what I like to do too is to uh, you know, this is a platform where I can educate you guys and hopefully educate other people as well so you know thanks to you guys too because i really appreciate the the opportunity to speak to you guys to see more of our team's work you can go to facebook instagram our youtube channel and of course at wildandexposed.com i want to spend send a special shout out to our hard-working and talented producer missy mckenzie for all that she does behind the scenes to create this show for your listening enjoyment. And no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on, make sure to take the time to hit that subscribe or follow button and to give us a positive review, a five-star rating, or a thumbs up, as those help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast 
on a weekly basis. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.